Good morning, everybody. This is very weird and very good. Uh, this has always been so weird, everything in, this, in the pandemic and the, the quarantine, and every new thing feels weird in like a new way, but this one actually feels at least better. It always feels like it kind of gets weirder, but this feels better because at least there's some that are here together. Um, last Sunday morning, I was standing in my cul-de-sac. We live on a cul-de-sac. And um, so, yes, our life is amazing because that's, you know, why people live on cul-de-sacs. Um, and um, we were, me and two of my neighbors were hosing off the cul-de-sac. It was this sort of ritual that I think happens after Fourth of July in a cul-de-sac where all of the disgusting ash and everything have built up over the night's festivities. So three of us are out there with our hoses, hosing off the cul-de-sac. It was wonderful. It was, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. And I was saying to my neighbor, you know, yeah, I mean, this is kind of weird for me still because it's Sunday morning. And I just kind of realized it was Sunday morning and I'm standing here hosing off my street and I'm not at church. And, uh, and that's been a pretty weird part of this because I can't remember before this quarantine the last time I just kind of didn't have anything to do on a Sunday morning. So it's been so weird. Well, um, and so, you know, I was like, I could kind of get used to this. It's nice to have some, some time like this. But then like a couple hours later, I almost cut my finger off with a table router and so, a, like a router. So I was kind of like, I don't know if that's God going. See, you should be doing something else because don't get too comfortable or I'm going to cut your fingers off. So um, you guys have probably gotten into these habits of their like totally different. Everything's totally different now. And for us, it's been that way as well. So we were excited to be able to finally kind of come back and start live streaming things. And, um, but one of the things that we have been doing as well is you probably noticed us like repeatedly saying in our services and in some emails, if you know anybody who has a hard time getting this, uh, these services online, if you know somebody who doesn't really use the computer that much or can't figure out the technology, um, you know, we talk to some people like that. If you know of anybody like that, let us know. We want to try to help them out. Well, one of the reasons we've been doing that is because we knew that if we ever started doing something like live stream, that we would have like a limited ability to have some people come. And so that is kind of one of the things that we've been trying to do is trying to sort of reach out to people who haven't been able to, to watch the services or have a hard time getting them and to invite them to come. And so that's kind of, we've got a couple of people here who fit in that category. They still had to pay like 10 grand a seat in order to, to be here, but they did it. They were like, hey, you know, it's worth, it. I'm just kidding. No, they didn't pay 10 grand a seat. Um, man, that would be such a good, <laughs> such a good fundraiser <laughs> if we just started charging. Nobody would pay for this. Um, so we, um, the whole joke is you, you, you lock them in and you make them pay to get out. That's like the joke. That's why they put the offering boxes on the way out. Um, so we, we are like, we've got some folks here and we are able to feel a little bit like this more of a, a worship service, but um, hopefully like as you're watching this at home, um, it can feel like you're participating because at least at 9 a.m. now, as long as we're doing these, we know that we're all sort of together at the same time collectively worshiping, and that's better. So um, it's, uh, it's a little different, but we, we love it. So um, this week we're continuing on in this series in Acts, and um, one of the things that um, we're, ta- we're at like a huge, huge point in uh, the book of Acts and so if you're somebody who's really interested in Christianity, in the church, or in history, or stuff like that, then this is all very exciting to you, because this is big stuff that's happening. Um, and, uh, and if you're not that interested in those things, or you don't find them, you know, really thrilling, then um, you might be wondering why, you know, week in and week out, we'll kind of talk about these different passages and be like, this is a big deal, this is such a huge deal, this is such a big time in the life of the church. Um, so you may not feel excited about it because it's not, you know, Jesus giving a parable about like something that, you know, feels like it's exactly what you're going through that day in your life, but um, it is about, like, more than anything, it's about the church and we're a part of the church, and one of the things that we've realized working through this together is how good it is and how important it is that we understand how the church works, like what we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to be doing. It is kind of something that we should be probably more excited about than we often are. So um, I, I think especially as we talk about this week and we talk about this huge change that we're right in the middle of here in the book of Acts, um, it relates to especially any church or any person in church who has ever felt like you've had to deal with change, because change can be a difficult thing. 
At least that's what I hear. So um, I want to read, we're covering an entire chapter this morning, but uh, because it's a little bit repetitive compared to what was happening last week, um, we're going to skip a lot of it because it's, it's Peter basically repeating what happened last week when he um, had this dream of food on a sheet and then ate with this guy Cornelius. Uh, so if you aren't aware of that because you didn't watch it last week, go back and, and listen to that or watch that, and then, um, and then you can you know, catch up with us. But we're not going to read through all the stuff where he recounts it, but we are going to read through some of the passages. So I'll put them up on the screen. Um, they'll be up on your screen, hopefully, if all of our tech works uh, as we want it to. Um, so we're going to just read the first four verses of Acts chapter 11, and then just stop for a second and kind of walk our way through this thing. Um, this is after, uh, like I said, what we talked about last week, Peter and Cornelius, and he's gone to have um, to eat with him. And that's a really big deal because uh, this, is, uh, this is a Jewish person. We talked a lot about what, who Cornelius was. He was a, a God-fearer. He was somebody who was like, uh, he saw a lot of um, truth and a lot of um, significance with this idea of the Jewish God. Uh, Cornelius uh, wasn't a Jewish person. He wasn't even a proselyte, meaning he wasn't saying, I want to become Jewish. I'm in the process of that. I'm learning all the laws and doing all that stuff. He instead was somebody who was saying, um, I completely see how the God of the Jewish people makes sense. And I see uh, the virtue, I see the wisdom in the way that these people live, I see um, the, even the value in how old their beliefs are compared to the Roman uh, Empire that I'm a part of. It's like we're kind of making it up as we go along, and, and yet they've been saying these things for thousands of years. Um, and, uh, and so as he's seeing that, he's a God-fearer. He's somebody who has like made sacrifices to God. He has, he has observed the Sabbath probably. He's given money to the poor because he sees um, that that's something that is God's heart. God's heart is to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. So God comes to him and he says, Cornelius, I'm going uh, to like validate, basically, like, I've heard your prayers, I've, I've, I've seen your offerings, which is a big deal, because when you're, when you're a God-fearer, when you're, uh, we were saying last week, when you're drifting kind of towards God, when you're drifting in that direction, a lot of times there's this question of like, am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right things? Does God even hear me? Or because I'm not like these Jewish people who have gone all the way, does it like not matter? So, um, so that's the person that Peter comes and God sends him to, to eat with. And the whole importance of this is basically God is now, and this is a really big deal for the Israelites, God's saying, from this point on, this isn't just going to be about Jewish people anymore. This is not just going to be about this one group of people that remain different. You have to become a Jewish person to become a Christian. This isn't just about following all the laws that they follow. This is about something different. And this is a huge thing for them to try to wrap their mind around. So Peter ate with him. This change kind of began to happen. And now we're going to read about basically the aftermath because Peter's basically going to, you know, kind of get in trouble and have to explain to the leaders of the, of the church, as he probably should have to, why he's doing something that's so different from what they've done before. And I just want to say before we get into it, this is a good thing. The fact that they're worried, the fact that they're asking him about this, because um, any church, any, any group like ours, where someone does something that's so totally different than what we've been doing, um, that doesn't stop and say, hey, uh, can you please help us understand how this is what God wants, how this is in line with, with what God says, um, is a church that probably doesn't care about, like, being holy and actually doing what God says. So, so um, anyway, Acts 11, verses 1 through 4, um, say, say this. Um, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order. And so uh, we'll stop there for a second, and then you, you get to a big part of Acts, as you're probably seeing in front of you in the Bible, where he's now recounting for them 
sort of exactly what happened again. Now, uh, the authors of, uh, like Luke, who wrote this down, did not have a lot of space to write in. Um, he, uh, it was a big deal to like write this stuff down and to have to keep it in these scrolls, to have to have it transcribed. Um, so they had to be very careful about what they chose to write. So the fact that he is trying to, like, the fact that, P- that Luke is repeating this again and again, it, it actually says quite a bit. He's not, he's not a bad writer. He's not like a boring writer. It's not like he ran out of stuff to talk about and he's like, I'll just do a review from last week or whatever. He, he actually does this because it's so important that he wants, uh, he needs for the church, for the people that read this to understand, once again, exactly what happened and that Peter explained it, exactly how it happened for him to the leaders of the church. It's important that people know that, that, that this group in Jerusalem are not gonna make whatever decision they make based on just kind of, Peter telling them some vague description of what happened, that Peter making it sound a little different or being overly general. Uh, he wants us to know that they heard exactly what happened in, in all the detail that it happened and that, and that the way they respond is based on that thing. So, so he tells them all about what happens with Cornelius and that he goes and he eats. And he basically says, I know that what I did is shocking to you. Believe me, it was to me too. But God led me to do it and... Um, because he led me to do it, um, I, I had to obey. And then after I did it, after I obeyed, um, he basically says, and, and this is the big ending, the big cool ending of the passage last week, he says, as I was preaching the gospel to these people after we ate together, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And, it, and when that happens in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone like this, where they have tongues and, and they have these manifestations of the Spirit, the reason that happens is to show that God actually is like validating this group of people, this thing. So basically, if Peter had spoken to them and, and then that was it, he walked away and left, there might still be some question of like, was that right? Okay, this was just Peter. He had, a, he had like a vision, he had a dream. So we're gonna base everything we do from now on on one guy's vision, one guy's dream. Uh, that's, that's usually not a good idea, right? Don't we tell people maybe there should be more than that? Well, there is more than that because what happens is the Holy Spirit comes on these people and, and, and the people that come with Peter, without getting too much into the weeds of this thing, he brings, uh, he brings six people with him um, and at the time, seven people was what it took for there to be sort of like a valid legal decision that's made. So basically, Peter went with enough people um, that there could be witnesses so that whatever happened, you could attest to it and it would be considered valid in even a court. So all of this is done so that we can know that it's absolutely what happened. And so as he went with these guys and as he preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And what does that tell us? It says to us that God is actually in this and these people actually received the gospel. And not only did they receive the gospel, but God said, I want them to go forth with the gospel and that's why I'm giving them my Holy Spirit and they're doing these things. So like God's, God's good with it. So Peter says this, and this is the thing where you go, okay, oh, okay, all right, God's, God's doing something. Um, now it says that these Jewish people criticized him, which means they obviously are coming to him not happy. They're not coming to him saying, hey, we're your friends, we're just being nice, let's have a good warm conversation. He's probably in a position where he could be pretty defensive. And, and we, the Bible is full of examples of groups of men basically putting somebody on the spot and it never, ever, ever goes well. Like they never actually go, oh, okay, all right, Good. Okay, let's, let's keep going then. We can all be friends now. It's, it's in every situation, it seems, that when some group of leaders put somebody on the spot and that person's the good guy, then it never ends well. They usually get stoned. They, have to, they get run out of town. They get crucified. They, uh, whatever happens. And so uh, we read about all this thing as Peter recounts it. And then after he tells them, that, you know, the Holy Spirit came. These guys became like actual like followers of Jesus and God's spirit was in them which means that God is happy with this. He is okay with this, is what he wants. We then read this. He then says this to, to, to them. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Like, what am I gonna do? God's making it very clear this is what he wants. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, there isn't a way to overstate how big of a deal it is that they fell silent 
and they responded this way. Because like I said, in the Bible especially, when a group of, of leaders uh, put somebody on the spot, this never happens. They never go, oh, all right, you're right, we're wrong, right? Never happens. In fact, that almost never happens when a group of people gets somebody in front of them and says, explain yourself to us. They never go, oh, you're right, we're wrong. And it tells us something about these guys, and, and, and it's this. It's basically first that as they're talking with him, there are, their ears, their eyes, their hearts are open. Like they're, they're actually, the leaders of the church are unlike the leaders that have come before them. They're unlike the people that have come before them, and especially these, these, a lot of these Jewish leaders. Um, probably what happened was uh, the, the people, it says the party of the circumcision, uh, these are called the Judaizers, and they come up again, they come up in Galatians. They're sort of known for as being the legalistic guys who expect everyone to get circumcised, so... Obviously, they had lots of enemies. And you had, probably they were the ones that asked the question and were pushing Peter. And as he responds, you have the leaders of the new church, sort of the pillars of the church, who are, are listening to what he's saying. And as he's talking and as he's explaining the thing to them, as hard as it is for him to explain, their ears are open. They're listening to the thing God did. They're actually really listening to the thing God did. I mean, I talked to so many people who were like, I want to hear God. I want to know what he's saying. I want to know what he thinks. I want to know what he's doing. And it's like, if your ears are closed, meaning like if you don't actually want to know the things that God might actually have to tell you because those things are hard, those things are different, those things are new, then your ears aren't really open. And you could talk all day about wanting to hear things and your ears aren't open. Their eyes were open. They were willing to look at what was happening in front of them and, and see something, even if it was a new thing, and their hearts are open, which is the most important thing, obviously. They're willing to be open. The heart is the center of the person. It's what drives you. It's what motivates you. I mean, how hard is it for us to become totally driven by something with such conviction to be as devout as these guys were and to then change, right? To allow that to change when God decides it's time for that thing to change. The... the and, and the other thing is, this is probably what's even more surprising, is their mouths are closed. And that's how you know that their ears, eyes, and hearts are open, is their mouths are closed. It's, it's very unusual for people in their position to be actually, like, not talking. So, so, so what happens when a group of people get someone like Peter in front of them and he says this is they they yell at him, right? They go, they, we weren't listening anyway. This is like a married couple, married couple having a fight and not actually trying to understand the other person, not actually trying to listen to the other person, but just trying to get your point across, just trying to defend yourself, right? You listen, sure, fine, okay, good, they're done talking. Now, you open your mouth and you say all the things that show that you weren't really listening in the first place, right? Because all you're really interested in doing is getting them to see what you see, getting them to think what you think. There's a huge change that's happening right here in the church. And these leaders, the leaders of the new church, and this is a really big deal, actually embrace it. They say, all right, you're right. The gospel now must go to the Gentiles, and it isn't just going to belong to the Jewish people. Up until this point, being a follower of Jesus has meant being a Jewish person. It has been within the temples, within the Jewish faith. And if anything, the, the, the furthest outside of that they've gotten is people who are trying to become Jewish. And they're like, okay, we'll let those guys in. And Cornelius was somebody who wasn't Jewish. and wasn't becoming Jewish, and he still was allowed and he was brought in, and that matters a lot. So we see this kind of change, and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around, especially if you read the Old Testament. You go, okay, but, but isn't it true that God is going back on what he said? Isn't it true that God said, I want you guys to do all these things, which is follow these laws? The Israelites were people who God said, I want you to follow all these laws I gave you, and by following these laws, you're going to be distinct. And by being distinct, you're going to be my people. That's how you know you're doing the right thing. So isn't God changing and isn't that something God's not supposed to do, right? I mean, if, if I got up and I said today, like, hey, guys, good news. Everything has changed, and now we're supposed to do something totally different. You should go, uh, uh, mm, warning, warning, that's not a good thing. That's not something that's supposed to happen. God's not, things aren't supposed to change like that. So uh, why is it that this is okay? And the best way to explain it is honestly um, with the way that it works um, sort of as a parent, because uh, 
There are things that are changing, but the heart of the thing itself hasn't really changed. Um, as a father um, with my children, I, uh, I, I love my children, and so my goal, uh, because I believe that the best thing I could do for them is to simply be the best father that I can be for them. Okay, so that's my goal. My goal is be the best father I can be for my children. Now, what does that mean for a six-year-old and an eight-year-old? Uh, it means uh, I am telling them to do lots of things that they don't yet, I'm kind of teaching them things through rules, through expectations, sometimes through, all the time through consequences, and, and sometimes through, you know, happy, good, and encouraging experiences, but mostly through consequences, it feels like. And I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with them. I, I spend quantity time with them. I'm with them a lot. I, we provide for their every need. Uh, we, we provide for them, and, and they come to depend on us. We have all this stuff that we do for a six-year-old and an eight-year-old in order to be good parents to them, because that's the way it looks to be a good parent to a six and an eight-year-old. Um, now, uh, they don't always feel like we're good parents, believe it or not. Um, they sometimes feel like we're not good parents because of some of the things that we expect of them. We were watching a movie uh, on Friday night, of course, and um, it was this movie called Mars Needs Moms. And it was such a weird movie. I mean, the title alone is pretty weird. But the premise of the movie is very simple. Uh, Mars needs moms. And so they look at Earth and they find the best moms to raise their kids, and then they come and abduct them, and a kid goes and rescues his mom from this happening, right? So in the beginning of the movie, the Martians are looking down at Earth, and they're seeing these different parents. And they look at one mom who's, they're at an ice cream truck, and her kid's like throwing a tantrum and like crying and stuff, and the mom's like doing this, and she's like trying to make the kid happy, and she gets an ice cream cone, and she goes like this, you know? And then the kid goes, throws it on the ground and is like crying and screaming and she's like, okay, okay. And then she gets two more and she goes like that and then the kid throws them on the ground. So the Martian goes, nah. And they're like, not a good mom. And then they go to this other mom and they're watching her and she's standing in her yard and like her two sons or somebody are fighting and she's like trying to like stop them but I guess she's not really asserting her, you know, being a calm, assertive pack leader or something to her kids. I don't know. So they're like not listening to her. So the, the Martian's like looking at her like, nah, no. And then they go to this kid who's like sitting on his porch and he's like being lazy and there's like a trash bag next to him and the mom comes out and she's like, like, and then points to the trash can and points that and he's like, okay, and he gets up and he like goes to the trash can and he comes back. And then she comes back out and she points to the lid of the trash can and he's like, ah, and he goes and he gets it and they go, ah, and then they abduct his mom, right? Okay, so, and then they show like throughout, it's kind of messed up, right? So they show throughout like the whole first part of the movie, this kid is like, uh, you know, he's a pretty lazy kid. He's like, he's like not doing what his mom wants. She's like clearly like killing herself so that this kid can like have food to eat and can have a good life. And, and, and she, I think she's a pretty well-balanced, pretty good mom, you know. But uh, her son uh, doesn't think that. He's always like, oh man, like you're the worst. Like I can't believe it. Like you're the worst. And then like there's this big, the big scene, of course, when he's going to bed where he's like, I wish you were my mom. And that's the last thing. And then she gets abducted by Martians. So pretty heavy. Um, okay, so here's why I'm telling you this. The, the next day I was talking to our son, and I was like, Tegan, what a crazy movie, right? What was that movie? What do you think that movie was about? He was like, it was about a mom who made her kid her slave, and they took her because they wanted the mom that had the kid that was a slave. I was like, are you kidding me right now? And he was like, yeah, I'm a slave. And and, and this is like something that they say all the time now. It's like, we're your, before the movie, not just the movie. They're like, we're your slaves. And I'm like, you're my slave. I am literally making you food right now, and you're not eating it. How are you my slave, right? But this is what happens. So, the, so you, 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 as a good parent, I'm trying to do all these things for my child. And if they don't appreciate it and don't see the value of it, then what they're going to do is they're going to say things like, oh, I'm just your slave. You're trying to control me. And this is exactly what God's people did 
as God, the God of the Old Testament, with the law, was sort of bringing up these people as a nation, right? So he gives them all of this stuff. He provides their food. He provides their protection. He provides their water. He provides um, their land that they're going to live in. And then any expectation he has of his people, they'll either be grateful, they'll, they'll, they'll say, this is good, we should do this, or they'll be like, we're just your slaves. We should be, you know, back in Egypt at least where we had meat or whatever. And, uh, and you're not a good God, right? So this is kind of the downside of obviously trying to be a good parent is you you still have to expect that this is going to come from your kid. Well, when my kids grow up, as they get older, I have the same goal. I love my kids, so I want to be the best father I can be to them. But what does that goal look like now? Well, as they grow up, that goal's different. The goal of all of the rules was to internalize, to teach them things so that they now don't need all of those rules. They now can do those things, right? They can now be honest. They can be trustworthy. This morning, my daughter came in while I was getting ready, and she was like, Dad, can Tegan and I each have a brownie? This is like what she does. She's really smart. If she wants something, she gets two of them, and she'll go, the worst is she'll go like, hey, do you want one? And then we'll be like, oh, that's so nice of you. I got one for me too, right? That's what she does. Um, she's like so diabolical. So she came in with these huge brownies and she's like, dad, can you and I have a brownie, please? And I was like, no, don't be crazy. Get out of here. And so she left. And then I went downstairs and her mouth was like full and she was going like this. And she had brownie all over her face. And I was like, Davey, you know, what are you doing? And she's like, nothing. And, and then I was like, do you have a brownie? She's like, just a crumb, just a little crumb. You know, her mouth is like so full she can't even close it, right? So the whole point of like all of the, of the rules and the, and, the, and the reiterating them and everything I'm doing is to get them to a point where when they're older, they don't need someone to tell them don't eat brownies all the time. They don't need someone to tell them don't lie. They don't need someone to tell them like all of these things. They've internalized these things and so the rules are no longer necessary. Also, when my kids are older, I'm probably not going to be spending as much time with them. My time with them is probably going to be more about quality and maybe less about quantity, which is sort of how it feels right now. Uh, the time that we do spend together will, will be different, right? To provide for my kids will be different, right? It might be instead of making the meals and stuff, I'm loaning them money. Uh, it might be like um, I'm, I'm letting them live with me again for a season, you know? Uh, it might be that I'm like saying uh, I'm watching their kids so that they can go to work or they can do stuff. Like providing for them looks different, this is exactly what we see happening here from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that, is that the goal that God has for his people never changes. It's that I want to be known, and I, want, and I want people to be a part of my kingdom. I want people to be in a relationship with me. The way that he goes about doing that in the Old Testament is I'm going to form a people, and those people have to be distinct. And so that means they're going to have these laws and these rules that form a whole culture And it's not all just about sin and right and wrong. It's also about being a distinct group of people that have this culture. And what we saw last week was that it worked, was that there were people that looked at that group and said, you know what, that makes sense, the way that those people live. So these things change, and that doesn't mean that God's contradicting himself. It doesn't mean that that what's happening in the church is not a good thing. And it also doesn't mean that it invalidates the things that came before. This is why, as their eyes and ears and hearts are open, they see this is the same God. This is the same thing that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you read things that indicate that like these people, uh, the outsiders, the ones that weren't Jewish, these are a people that God is intending to be in relationship with one day. He doesn't just want to judge them. To be an Israelite is to live your whole life, to be a Jewish person is to live your whole life trying to be different, looking forward to the day when all of these other people are going to get punished for how they're treating you. That is how you, like, that's what you kind of look forward to in part. And, uh, and so now they're also finding out, wait a second, we don't get to look forward to God punishing and hurting and killing all these people and judging them? That God's judgment on the world, on these people, he wants to be a judgment of grace, is what the Old Testament actually says. He doesn't want it to be a judgment of pain and suffering entirely. So they hear this and they see it, which is actually a really hard thing to have happen once change comes, is to actually see it and hear it. So they, they go on and, uh, 
And what's happening ultimately as this change is happening is this. Uh, everything is now changing in the church. Probably one of their most, uh, one of their, 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 sort of their prime directive as a people is changing. It's changing from you're supposed to be different and distinct and that's how you serve me to um, now uh, you are to go out and you are to reach everyone. And what that's going to do is it's going to change what that, that the priority of that sort of you being distinct and you being different. Um, the, the truth about this, if you read it, is this. Um, change is hard, even when it is good. Uh, people say, some people don't like change. People say, change is sometimes hard. I think that's crazy. I think almost nobody likes change. I don't like change. Uh, almost nobody likes change. And... Um, even when we think it's like good change, right? We still have to really adjust to it. This is a truth. And when we look at what's happening, we, we, I, I think the reason that I'm saying this so, with, so emphatically and, and emphasizing the change that's taking place is there, is there is, again, no way to overstate how hard it must be for a group of people to be going in one direction because God told you to, and then to feel like that changes and to have to actually go along with that. Everything I read about at this point of Acts, I go, why in the world did these people go along with this? Like, why did the people who were, who were Jewish, why did the people who were already a part of the church, why did even the followers of Jesus not at this point say, you know what, this is too much to ask of us. You're asking us to care about something that is like, it almost feels like the opposite of what we've cared about before. This is like what you read about in, like, like, like Jonah. Um, you know, so many people, most of the people I know who, who look at the story of Jonah understand why he didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites. Because they were really evil and they were really messed up. And I can't even tell you the stuff that the Assyrians, that they did to the Israelites because that would be like probably more PG-13. And I'm not going to do PG-13 this morning without like a lot of warning ahead of time. But it's pretty nasty and horrible stuff. Um, and, uh, and so, of course, like Jonah didn't want to go to his enemies and, and see them get forgiven. Given, right? Because that's, that kind of change is really, really painful. We, we almost don't even expect it from people. We go like, I, I don't know that somebody could do that. Maybe just, maybe it'll have to be a whole new group of people, right? But what we see these guys going through is this change that's hard. And one of the things that, that has to be emphasized is that this doesn't make the old way bad. So this doesn't invalidate the law that they followed before. This doesn't invalidate this idea of some food is, is pure and other food isn't. This doesn't invalidate the customs that they had before. And that's an important thing to see because the New Testament doesn't invalidate the Old Testament. The new ways don't invalidate the old ways. Um, in fact, it's important to be able to say, no, this is why this was a good thing. If I followed this law, if I followed this custom and this rule before, I was being obedient to God but I now have to let it go in order to do this new thing that God's calling me to do. Um, that's one of the reasons why people don't <clears throat> go along when that change comes, is because when, when God speaks to us, we go, no, because in my mind, the only way that I can move forward and start to reach these Gentiles is if somehow I'm invalidating all the things that we've done. And if my whole culture, my whole family is wrapped up in this thing, if this is our very identity as a people, then no, I can't do it. I can't invalidate that thing. And at no point does that happen. God never says, the New Testament church never invalidates and, 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 and criticizes the things that they did before. They're just trying now to move forward onto this next thing. The thing that we said last week was, um, and, and one of the ways that we know that, by the way, is just that as you read ahead in the epistles, um, the encouragement to the church is actually, listen, you guys don't have to stop following these customs. You can continue to be this people, but I also want you to not isolate yourselves from the outside world anymore. So, so find a way to eat with the Gentile. Do it. And what ends up being said to the, the church is like, is like, I want both of you to try and do what you think is best for the other person. I want the Jew to say, I, I'm not going to demand the Gentile to live like me. 
And I want the Gentile to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to invite a Jewish person over to my house and then eat like pork in front of them and be like, what? Like, what's your problem? What's your deal? Like, you got to be okay with this, right? I guess I'm more mature than you because I'm okay with this thing. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that people were constantly doing. So the, the encouragement moving forward is like, nope, this isn't about like you are even forced to stop doing what you did before. This is all about how you relate to other people and what you expect of them and what they need. But the goal is going to be different now. The goal is no longer going to be, I'm distinct, we're distinct, the church is distinct. The goal is going to be, I reach them, we reach them. And that doesn't mean that I compromise who I am and what I do even. The thing that I have conviction for, I can have conviction for. But... I cannot allow that thing to become sort of like a barrier in between me and these other people. What we talked about last week was, I said basically, when this change comes, it's so hard for the church to deal with. And this is true anytime change comes. I think there's two things that we can do if we don't like it, if we fight it. The first is that we create gray areas. We say, okay, fine, but let's not make it so black and white, you know, it's good or it's bad. Let's just say, you know, man, I really, I really, I mean, isn't it kind of better though? Like, like when in doubt, right? Like, okay, it sounds like there's some doubt. It sounds like we're not all feeling the right way about this. Then, then let's just err on the side of doing more, right? Let's just err on the side of keeping more of these rules. Let's just err on the side of asking these Gentiles to do some of the things that we've done. You see that happening when circumcision becomes a discussion and, uh, and the Jews are still expecting them to do that thing, right? This is the same thing that we do. We say, well, okay, but you know, let's not be too extreme and we create sort of gray areas. And the reason why we do that is honestly, we, we, we say, okay, fine, God, you can start to change things, but I think we can all still agree that like, the people who follow these customs are better. I think we can all still agree that the people who follow these traditions, who follow these rituals, who, who do it the old way are better probably. We can all agree, even if we don't have to say it, sort of, we all know it, right? That's one of the things that people do to fight this thing, that we do to feel better to fight it. The other thing we do is we say, let's make it a lot slower than whatever it is that's happening now. So, so they can also go, okay, that's fine. This is a big deal, you know, life is long. Like, uh, we'll get to that eventually, right? We'll change the way we are eventually. But what you see these men do, what you see Peter do, is when God moves, they go, okay, that's it. Like, things now have to change. It's either going to happen or it's not, right? The change is going to come or it isn't. I mean, it would be so easy, if nothing else, for them to say, let's let the next generation do this, right? How about we don't do it, but maybe we promise that we'll teach our kids that this is something that they need to do. We all know that wouldn't have happened, right? Because literally there's nothing more important to us than the things that we teach our kids. But that's something that we would have said, people would have said. We see this group of leaders do something that is totally insane, which is they embrace a change that is so hard for them. And they do it because they see that the heart of God is still there in what he's calling them to do to reach the Gentiles. We then go on and, and, and you kind of go down and you read about how they immediately now, after this change, they now begin to be a church that is all about reaching all kinds of people. And the way that looks is the beginning of a church in Antioch. We read, um, uh, let me see here. So we read in verse 19, uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who uh, on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So immediately after this happens, they, uh, the, we now hear about the beginning of what is going to be really the big, the major like explosion point of the church, which is Antioch. Up until now, the church has been all about Jerusalem, which is really this Jewish place. 
And now a church is going to begin in Antioch, and it's out of Antioch that, like, the great missionary journeys of Acts are going to be sent out. It's out of Antioch that the church is really going to become a huge thing. Antioch is the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. There's Rome, Alexandria, and then there's Antioch. And there's different Antiochs, as if it isn't confusing enough. So uh, this is like um, Phoenicia, Antioch of Phoenicia is like the easiest way to say it. And um, it's that one, you know, since if you know all of them and you're like, which one is it? Which none of us probably do. So it's this huge city. It's this huge town. It's, it's this like very um, sort of, there's tons of trade. There's tons of cultures. This is like going to New York. This is like going to Los Angeles. This is a massive city with lots of different belief systems, lots of different ways of being. And so in a lot of ways, it's a perfect place to begin talking about this gospel that needs to reach across cultural lines. And not just Jewish people are being reached in Antioch. Other people are. And what does this group of Jewish leaders of the early church do in Jerusalem when they hear this? They don't say, oh man, okay, they're already preaching to the Gentiles there. Well, let's send somebody to kind of make sure that we just slow the Gentile part of it down and we keep focusing on the Jewish people because that's a good thing. No. They, they send Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. His name means like, you know, the one who encourages, the one with the gift of encouragement. And, and he goes and his job, they send him there to build up the church. They say, Barnabas, go there, which is their way of saying that we want to make sure that this grows. Uh, what happens, because they hear, what happens because they let themselves be changed is that God's heart becomes their heart. And um, what God wants to have happen becomes what they want to have happen. Again, the fact that a group of leaders are saying, we want this thing to happen and we're going to make it happen ourselves. We're not going to let other people do it. We're not going to even expect that maybe somebody new comes up and does it. But we're going to take it on ourselves is so crazy. If you know anything about the way people are, the way that leadership works, to expect a person who is a leader, who has this tremendous sense of vision and conviction to change that thing, and then to go full speed ahead in this other direction because they see God calling them there. That is something that only the Holy Spirit, I think, can do like this. And that's what Acts is showing us. Throughout Acts, it isn't really about how great Paul is, how great the, the apostles are, how great the, the, the groups of Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders are. It's about how the Holy Spirit makes all of this stuff happen, is able to make things happen in the hearts of people that you go, man, how would a change like that really happen? It would take the Holy Spirit to do it. These guys took um, God's heart what he wanted and said, this is now going to be the thing that we live for. And you see that because they send their most valuable source of encouragement to the church in Antioch. They say, this is the place where we can now make this happen. It's not just Jewish people that are being reached. In fact, it's not just a Jewish place. It's not like Jerusalem where there's always going to be that shadow of the temple and this big, you know, impressive, like, yes, there are Jewish people there, but there's so many Greeks there, there's so many Hellenists there, there's so many Gentiles that can be reached. Let's make that the place that we send Barnabas. And so they send him there. They didn't expect other people to make this happen. They did it themselves. And so what happens is, uh, and it's kind of the last thing that we see, is, um, and this is basically where Paul is reintroduced after 10 years, like it's been 10 years since the whole Paul thing, um, and uh, him being converted and everything, and we, and we read about that here in verse 25 and 26. So Barnabas, after he kind of gave them his blessing, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this is it. This is the beginning of Paul and Barnabas and many others starting to lead the church, not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch. There's a, there's a huge significance to the fact that Barnabas goes to the church and he goes, I am so with you guys in what you're doing. And then whatever he does next, right, whatever he does next, he says, I want to encourage you, I want to support you, I want to give you exactly what you need for this to keep going. Whatever he does next says a lot 
about what the church needs to be about, what the church needs to do. And what does he do? He goes to Tarsus and he looks for this guy, Saul. This guy who is this incredibly well-educated, in multiple cultures, uh, person with huge roots in the Jewish faith, but obviously this heart for Gentiles as well. This guy who has spent the last 10 years just learning more and more about the gospel and about Jesus, preaching it and teaching it, and developing like basically this thing that would eventually become called Christian theology. And he goes and he gets Saul and he brings him with him so that they can do nothing for a year, but it says uh, meet with the church and teach a great many people. Here's what this shows. This is what it was to be a, one of God's people before this. To be one of God's people was to look like a bathroom sign. No, it was to be a person who at your very core, above all else, if somebody said, what is it about that guy that I'm going to point to that, that describes them? It's going to be, they're different. The Jews are different. They put a lot of work into being different. They won't even learn our language because they want to be different. They, eat, they won't eat pork, even though it's like the easiest thing to come by. So they're snobs, and they want us to know that. They follow all these rituals and holy days and everything else, uh, and they're, they're different. That's why, like we said last week, people mocked them so much and have historically mocked them, while at the same time respecting them, saying, but also deep down I know that they seem to have more conviction than I do. They seem to have more that they're about than I am, and I respect the fact that they're different. To be one of God's people up until this point, above all else, God said it to them himself, I want you to remain distinct. Don't marry people from other cultures. Don't allow other outside cultures to influence you. You need to be my distinct people. That has now changed. Now if somebody looks at a believer, if they encounter one in the street, and they get to know them, what they should see in that person that is at their core is this. It is God's word and the gospel. And we know that because Barnabas goes and he gets Saul. And they teach people. They teach them exactly how all of this works. They, they begin to talk about theology with them. They begin to explain to them how the God of the Old Testament is this same God of this new church that started. How Jesus is the way. And, and everywhere you read, it's always about following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. So much so, the gospel itself is such a part of every person that this is now what sets you apart. And when, and when because, I mean, how, like, how messy would it be, right? How messy could it get if all of a sudden this is about, like, uh, it's not about being different. It's not about being, you know, following all these rules. Well, then everyone's just going to become a horrible person. There's not going to be any structure, any rules, anything, and that's going to be terrible, right? Uh, they're not going to care about being holy. They're not going to care about doing the right thing. It's going to be a mess, well, when the thing at the core of who you are, your core conviction is God's word and is the gospel. And you say, I'm driven by that thing. No, that won't happen to you. When you are driven by God's word and the gospel, then you say, I want to do whatever it takes for other people to hear the good news of Jesus and to know God's word and the gospel. These are the things that will be at the core of who I am. This is the shift that has happened in the church. And the fact that Paul now comes in with Barnabas and they begin to teach, the church really does begin to be a place where teaching and understanding is so lifted up. And that's not different. Because like we said last week, the Jewish people were, if nothing else, known as philosophers by birth. They were known as people who had these very deep beliefs and thoughts that you had to really think about and reason through. Not because they were so complicated, but because life is complicated and because they apply to all of life. Ultimately, the last thing that you read about here is that it is in Antioch where the disciples are first called Christians. They're first called Christians, and, and, and there's so much significance to this because that's what's happening. This isn't just about being a Jewish person anymore. This is about a new thing. This is about becoming a follower of Jesus. The people of Antioch were a pretty cynical group of people overall, like any major city, right? If you've ever been in New York, you know people aren't very nice there to each other because there's so many people, you just kind of don't see, like, 
individuals. You just kind of see it as a mass that's always in your way. And because they were so cynical, they often made up nicknames for people that were mean, that were sarcastic. And so uh, they made up this nickname for Christians, and it was kind of the little Jesus people, the, the people that follow Christ, the people that follow the Christ, one of those Christ people. It wasn't meant to be something of respect. It wasn't meant to be a name that was given to them because people admired them so much. It was given to them because it was very clear what these people were all about. They were all about this Christ. They were all about this Jesus person. That's now what the church is about. I think just in walking away from this, if there's one thing that we have to be able to grab onto, it's this. It is that for all of us who think that the job, that our job as a Christian is above all else to be different from everyone else, it is, that is us losing sight of the even more important goal that is so clear here. Our job as a Christian is to be a person who is about Christ and about the gospel. People ought to look at us and say they are about Jesus, not they don't do all these things and they do all of these extra things that I would never do. That rather than people look at you and say you're so religious, they would look at you and say Jesus is the core of everything about you. So much so, there are times when people would obviously mock you for that, which is what happens to the early church. But if, we have, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if we're going to be self-aware, which I can't ask you to be, I can't, or I can't force you to be, but I can ask you to be, if you're going to be honest with yourself and you're going to be self-aware, then you have to admit that that probably involves change in your heart. That probably involves some change, and change is never good. Even Change is never easy, even when it's good. That might involve change in your heart where you say, I'm going to allow myself to begin to reevaluate my priorities that I have, the way that I live, what I think it means to be a Christian. Is it about ritual? Is it about tradition? Is it about being different? Or is it about Christ and people hearing him? If it is, then that might mean some changes in the way that I live. Our church is going through a lot of change right now. And yet, I mean, everybody's going through change. But as we go through those ch that change, the most important thing is that our identity as a church be we are built on Christ, and he never changes. We are preaching the gospel to people, and that never changes. We are about God's word, and that never changes. It is not just that we be distinct and that we be different. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to worship once again. And um, so let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and for what you do in our lives. We're grateful for the fact that you have cared about us enough to ask us to do things that seem impossible to us, Lord. You did not simply raise up an entirely separate group of people to, to run this church, Lord. You, you instead changed the hearts of your own people, your own leaders, and you did that through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. The older that we get, the more it feels like change is impossible. We give up on it even. But Father, you desire uh, that we would always be people who have our ears and our eyes and our, and our hearts open to what it is you have to say to us and that we not give up on ourselves and our ability to change, Lord, if it's for you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the thing that, 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 that changes us, God. Not our own effort, not our own work and that we would simply be trying to bring, bring you into us to do that, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.